Uh, turning to another song that was one of our pre-service music selections, the Indigo Girls song, Go, includes these lyrics. Grandma was a suffragette, blacklisted for her publication, blacklisted for my generation. Those lines have stuck with me ever since I first heard that song more than two decades ago. I find that reminder to be so powerful, invoking the memory of radical forebears who came before us, came before us as suffragists, as abolitionists, as social justice activists for so many causes who together passed on to us a world, a world not perfect, but a world with more justice and more equity than would have been the case if they had not done the work of acting for peace and justice, a world that we have inherited. As the Torah reminds us, we live in cities we did not build. We drink from wells we did not dig. We sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. Along those lines, as I've been immersing myself in the history of the women's suffrage movement, two particular examples stood out to me, and I'll uh, share my screen with you to give some um, visual imagery to the words that I will share. In 1913, uh, white organizers told Ida B. Wells Barnett and other black women, you need to walk at the back of the women's suffrage procession that we're going to have in Washington, D.C., she rightly refused and walked as part of the main delegation. But she marched that day not only for herself, but for the voting rights she would help win for her two daughters. Her perseverance and determination also helped win voting rights that would be inherited by descendants she would never meet, such as her great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster. Today, the family resemblance is quite remarkable, actually. In the words of a contemporary phrase of those verses we heard earlier from the Torah, we build on foundations we did not lay. We warm ourselves by fires we did not light. Together, we can build across the generations. Likewise, consider this photo from 1892 of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, her daughter Harriet, and her granddaughter Nora. All three generations photoed uh, fought for the right to vote. I should add that if you, like me, sometimes feel you are too busy to get involved with yet another social justice cause, it is humbling to remember that in 1848, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton was helping launch the first wave of feminism in this country, she was a 33-year-old mother of three young boys. I suspect she was quite busy. Nevertheless, she persisted. She fought the good fight for decades, and although Elizabeth Cady Stanton died in 1902, 18 years before women won the right to vote in this country, the story did not end with her death. Her daughter and her granddaughter continued in her footsteps, and in 1920, when the 19th Amendment did finally pass, her daughter was 64 years old and would live to vote for another two decades. Elizabeth's granddaughter in 1920, she was only 37 years old. She would live to vote another five decades until her death in 1971. As with Ida B. Wells Barnett, these three incredible women enfranchised not only themselves, but also descendants they would never meet, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton's great 
great-granddaughter, Caroline Jenkins, who today carries on her family's legacy as a women's rights activist and elected legislator. Jenkins' mother was born one month prior to the passage of the 19th Amendment. Both she and Colleen have always had the right to vote, for which their ancestors fought so hard to achieve. We, did, we build on foundations we did not lay. We warm ourselves by fires we did not light. Together, we can build for peace and for justice and for equality across the generations. I could go on with many more examples, but the most important question before us has already emerged. Not only how should we celebrate and honor the social justice victories of the past, we certainly should ask that question of how to honor the past, but also how should we leverage the hard-won freedoms that we have inherited to secure an even more profound peace, liberty, and justice for ourselves and for the generations that will follow us, even as Jen uh, invited us to hear in the spoken meditation, unto the seventh generation to come. We are called not only to learn history, but to make the history that we will pass on to future generations. And in this moment, we are very much called to help make history. In reflecting on the struggle for women's suffrage in this country, it is evident that the work of peace and justice so often stretches from generation to generation. Although the story of the first wave of feminism ultimately ends in victory, it is tragic in a sense that almost all the founders of the women's movement died before that first wave crested. Perhaps most prominently, Susan B. Anthony died in 1906, 14 years before the 19th Amendment passed. And I find the story quite moving that as she lay dying, her final words listed her comrades in the struggle for gender justice. She named the women who had worked with her as if in a roll call. After her death, her nurse said, Dear old soul, rather hated to die. She wanted to live to gain just one more victory. I love that. Looking back over the span of decades, we know now what those 68 women who signed the Declaration of Sentiments at the first Women's Rights Convention in 1848, what they could not know at the time. Of those 68 signers, only one, one woman, Charlotte Woodward Pierce, who was 18 years old at the time, would live until 1920 when she was able to celebrate both the passage of the 19th Amendment and her 91st birthday. We now find ourselves a century later still. This Tuesday will be the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, that the rights of citizens of the United States to a vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Enshrining those 28 words into our United States Constitution has been described as a 75-year marathon spanning three generations from that first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848 to the victory in 1920. And when you hear that place, Seneca Falls, some of you may recall that one of the most memorable passages in President Obama's second inaugural address were these words, 
which echo both the Declaration of Independence and the poignancy of his second inauguration happening on the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. He said, we the people declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal, is the star that guides us still, just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. Just as it guided all those men and women, sung and unsung, who left fit footprints along this great mall, to hear a preacher say that we cannot walk alone, to hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth. With that memorable passage, the part that um, strongly resonated with me and many others was our nation's first black president inscribing into the annals of American history the formulation Seneca Falls, Selma, Stonewall. These are not separate events. They are deeply all a part of our American history. And it would have been enough for President Obama to rest on the rich symbolism of that day alone. It would have been enough for President Obama to rest on the historic sweep from Jefferson to King to himself. It would have been enough to celebrate the re-election to the highest office in the land of an African-American named Barack Hussein Obama. But President Obama's alliterative allusion to Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall pointed beyond the significance embodied in his own person to the larger intertwined tapestry of social justice in our country and beyond. Dr. Melissa Harris Perry, an African-American uh, political scientist, pundit, and Unitarian Universalist, described the importance this way. She said that when the president name-checked the watershed movements of the women's rights, civil rights, and LGBT rights movement, he offered a powerful mo moment of official recognition. As many of you have heard me say before, the stories we tell matter. It matters which stories we choose to tell. It matters how often we tell them the when and the why. It matters whose stories we are lifting up and embedding further into our collective memory and which stories we are passing over and allowing to be forgotten. In this case, I love President Obama's choice to highlight the struggles for gender justice, for racial justice, and for LGBT equality, seeing them as interwoven, interdependent strands in the great story of struggling for collective liberation in which we finally all get free. Now, certainly there are times when activists in these various struggles have been forced into competition with one another. But there are also so many ways in which the various movements for social justice in this country have and continue to influence and embolden one another. Now, I'll only have time this morning to say just a little more about the intersections of racial justice and gender justice in the early women's movement. But I have a sermon planned in just a few months in which I will focus much more fully on a Black women's history of the United States. For now, it's significant to note that in 1848, at that first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, it was actually surprisingly controversial from our contemporary perspective as to whether the advocacy for women's equality, whether it should actually go so far as to including the right to vote 
Was that too much to ask? Was that unrealistic? Of the 11 resolutions in the Declaration of Sentiments being voted on that day, 10 passed unanimously. But the resolution proposing the right to vote, that almost failed. The voice that proved decisive in helping pass that amendment was ironically a man's voice. But in this case, it was not just any man, it was Frederick Douglass, the formerly enslaved African-American who became one of our nation's greatest orators, writers, and social reformers. Douglass's presence at that first women's rights convention is significant, as was his ongoing advocacy not only for racial equality, but also for gender equality. At the same time, Douglass was clear for himself that is forced to choose he supported racial justice before gender justice. To him, the imminent threats of lynchings and other acts of racial violence against African Americans made the movement for racial justice a singularly urgent priority. Some early feminists countered that support for gender justice was more important because it would enfranchise literally half the country's population. As it turns out, we know it was more complicated than that because the reality of Jim Crow laws and racist voter suppression meant that even when women were legally given the right to vote in 1920, in many states, both black women and black men were regularly prevented from voting for another four decades after 1920 until the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, although we know the work of voter suppression also continues to this very day. In a similar vein of following the story of the women's rights movement beyond 1920, I highly recommend the miniseries Mrs. America. I hope many of you have already seen it. If you haven't, I recommend it to you. It's streaming on Hulu. It powerfully depicts how the torch of women's rights was picked up and carried on in the 1970s by second wave feminists, including Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, uh, Shirley Chisholm, Bella Abzug, and many more. And for now, as we find ourselves commemorating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage at a time that is less than 80 days from the next presidential election, let me share with you uh, a poem uh, that's quite poignant and written uh, for such a time as this. I'll share my screen with you as part of that. This poem is by uh, Evie uh, Shockley, a black female English professor at Rutgers University. I'm gonna share with you just an excerpt, but the full poem is worth reading in full. It's titled, Women's Voting Rights at 100, But Who's Counting? Which is taken in a few different ways, right? It matters who's counting the votes. She writes, one vote is an opinion with a quiet legal force, a barely audible beep in the local traffic, and just a plashless drop of mercury in the national thermometer. But a collectivity of votes, a flock of votes, a pride of votes, a murder of votes can really make some noise. One vote begets another, if you make a habit of it. My mother started taking me to the polls with her when I was seven, small and thrilled to step into the booth, pull the drab curtain hush shut behind us and flip the levers beside each name she pointed to, the X's 
clicking into view. There, she called the shots. One vote can be hard to keep an eye on, but several, a colony of votes, can't scuttle away unnoticed so easily. My mother, a veteran registrar for our majority black election district, once found, after much searching, two ballots, two bags of ballots, a litter of votes stuffed in a janitorial closet. One vote was all Fannie Lou Hamer wanted in 1962 when her constitutional right was over 40 years old. She tried to register. All she got for her trouble was literacy tested, poll taxed, fired, evicted, shot at. A year of grassroots activism nearly planted her Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in the National Convention. One vote per eligible voter was all Stacey Abrams needed. She nearly won the Georgia governor's race in 2018 and lost by 50,000. An unkindness of votes. To the man whose job was purge, maintaining the voter rolls. Days later, she rolled out plans for getting voters a fair fight. It's been two years and counting. As we near the 100th anniversary of women's rights to vote, two days from now on Tuesday, let us remember we are lifted up on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking women. But we are called not only to learn their history, to honor and celebrate the victories of those who came before us, though we very much should do that. We are also called to do as they did, to make history. Together, may we do all that is in our power to create a better world, the best world we can for the generations to come, a world of peace and liberty and justice not merely for some, but for all. In that spirit, let's sing together, Fire of Commitment.